Osiris Media, this is Beautiful Garbage, a look at how America unleashed punk rock on the world. I'm Kevin Hogan, and we will be tracing the development of punk rock from American garages and bars to England in the mid to late 70s and back, looking at the important figures in their work. Today in episode 6, by virtue of the vicious, we follow the Sex Pistols as they go from an English phenomenon to worldwide recognition before imploding as 1978 started. While in America, their doppelganger, the Dead Boys, do much the same, leaving us with a multitude of bands and subgenres and asking, what is punk? Over the last 12 months, punk rock has become almost a battle cry in British society. As 1977 dawned, punk rock had gone from the dirty streets of New York to a national phenomenon in England, due in large part to the bad reputation it had earned by the antics of the Sex Pistols. There are certain groups whom we do not regard with favor and whom I personally will do everything I can within the law to prevent ever coming to London again. It's really like a Pandora's box. The whole thing, to a certain extent, has been created out of the media. But like it's got out of hand, and the media now don't know what to do with it. They can't cope with it. And unfortunately, because they can't cope, they're screwing up a lot, and they're causing a lot of aggravation. Because you don't have to be a fantastic musician. You, you don't have to be old. You don't have to be in the music business years. You can just get a guitar, play for a few weeks, and go on stage and do it. It's difficult nowadays to become regarded as man as opposed to boy. The, what's the anthropologists call the rite de passage in this society has become fudged. And I think an awful lot of people who um, enjoy punk would really like to be back in those days when they could actually see physical people hacking each other. The pistols of the clash what was happening there, there was an energy there and there was a forcefulness about what they were doing and a determination about it that, that really I could tie into the same kind of cultural revolution energy that was in New York. If it's going to be something that changes culturally the music scene, it has to be about great tunes, but it has to be about lyrically, it has to be about a movement. It has to be about a cultural shift. Now, here comes the music. As we heard in episode 5, punk rock was never marketed in the US. And outside small pockets of fans was mostly an underground phenomenon. Then, in 1975, Malcolm McLaren saw the music's potential as a soundtrack to a new youth culture and changed the basic nature of the genre. The lyrics went from self-absorbed to pseudo-political, reflecting the time and place the writers existed in. It became clear that uh, lyrics were very important to these bands, you know, they were, they were dealing with um, 
you know, everyday matters in a erudite and poetic fashion, I thought. Especially when you got to read the, you know, uh, Joe Strummer's lyrics and things like that, you know. Pistols were like really angry and loud and just yelling about it. Whereas the Clash were angry and loud, but questioning about it. And whereas the Pistols were just like scream about how, you know, something was wrong, the Clash would kind of say, well, this is wrong, but what are you going to do about it? The music was soon embraced by record companies, leaving the genre fragmented, with goth, hardcore, and new wave all gaining some footing in popular culture. The Ramones had spent October 1976 in the studio, and on January 10th, 1977, released their sophomore effort, Leave Home. Meanwhile, The Clash had parlayed the failed Anarchy tour into a six-figure deal with CBS, taking heat from the purists saying they sold out. Two days after The Clash signed that deal, EMI terminated the Sex Pistols after releasing only one single. And our final live band tonight also have a warning on them. One of the most reviewed and most reviled rock phenomenon of recent weeks, we got a few votes. Sex Pistols, you can hear them warming up in the background even now. After EMI dumped the Sex Pistols, A&M Records picked them up. These two events would shape the future of punk, as The Clash began to establish themselves as not only the better musicians, but more savvy in their master plan, eschewing the antics Malcolm McLaren encouraged his band to embrace. He was a great spin doctor in a way. He would react to situations with incredible alacrity and inventiveness without actually having created them with a master plan. They happened picking that up and, and amplifying it and making it really work for what he was doing. After the Grundy incident, it wasn't long before the band began to unravel, starting in February when Glenn Matlock was fired or quit or both after two shows in Holland. You know, a lot of shit had gone down and things going ahead between me and John. I kind of had enough at that stage. He was replaced by one John Simon Ritchie, a.k.a. Sid Vicious, and by March they had signed with A&M, but within a week were terminated for destroying the label's offices on a visit. Pistols Mark II with Sid. Bad mistake. And Sid walked in, looking absolutely fantastic, with his spiky black hair and this gangly, horrible creature that absolutely star written all over him, you know. The Clash, on the other hand, were moving their message forward, releasing the single White Riot in March, their eponymous debut in April, along with the singles Career Opportunities and Police and Thieves, plus an EP single, Capital Radio. 
we didn't really want to know anything and so we just did what we thought we played our tracks that we had a few tracks so we had basically our set before we made a record then in may they embarked on their white riot tour remember there were a lot of places that wouldn't let us play up and down the country universities and and that was probably something that they'd read that we we had a song called white riot they thought we were some sort of national front group whereas really the song was about white people getting up and doing it for themselves kids that you know weren't getting anything from emerson lake and palmer and uh, and top of the pops and wanted something bet more something more involved and something that they could relate to there was loads of people or a 20 people in London looking to get involved in something. They all at the same time, as I'm sure there are today. But back then, there wasn't so much going on. It's got nothing to do with them anymore when, like, Rod Stewart gets up there and starts, like, going on with his string orchestra, you know what I mean? It's not what you feel like. So you've got to have some music what you feel like. Otherwise, you go balmy, don't you? But it's another generation shield. Yeah, one that went wrong. The tour included the Buzzcocks and the Slits, in addition to New Wave Forefathers The Jam on several early dates. The Buzzcocks got their start when Howard Trafford placed a notice on his college bulletin board looking for musicians who liked the Velvet Underground song Sister Ray. Peter McNeish answered the ad, and together they in essence formed the Buzzcocks on that call. Trafford became Howard DeVoto, and McNeish became Peter Shelley. And with Garth Davies on bass and Mike Singleton on drums, they played their first gigs in 1976. I was incredibly sick of what I was hearing and what I was reading uh, on record, on paper. About a couple of weeks after we met with the of Palm and the group, we started just writing songs together. And the songs were good and we enjoyed them. And we thought, we must get a group together proper and go out and perform these songs you know, so people can enjoy them as much as we By July of that year, they had embraced the Sex Pistols aesthetic, replaced their bassist and drummer with Steve Dingle and John Mayer, and recorded a demo. This became an EP on their new Hormones label. Their first single, Boredom, set the agenda. They embraced the self-aggrandizing of Iggy Pop and Richard Hell and summed it up neatly in Breakdown. Not as blatant a ripoff of Blank Generation as the Sex Pistols Pretty Vacant, the song does owe a large debt to Hell. Yeah. If I 
That first single on EP Spiral Scratch can be cited as reigniting the independent record label movement, but sadly, Pete Shelley and Howard DeVoto were a powerhouse that didn't last much past the first single. Uh, well, it was just uh, another one in a series of uh, perverse movements on my part, really. Like, uh, getting involved with the sort of music the Buzzcocks were doing was uh, a reaction and a, maybe a slap in the face for, for everything that everything else so leaving it I uh, had this second slap in the face in the back of my mind uh, you know if Hall had leaving had made it the end it would have been just a waste of time as, as doing it because there'd been nothing actually there uh, because he left before we actually uh, became really well known DeVoto left the band and emerged a year later as New Wave Frontrunners magazine. The Buzzcocks fared better, having a string of hit singles. Diddle switched to guitar and Garth Davies rejoined the band on bass for a time before being replaced by Steve Garvey. They caught United Artist ear and in August 77 had a record deal. The strain was too much for Elvis and he passed that same day. After playing their first gig opening for The Clash in March, The Slits, the first all-female English punk band, were asked to join the White Riot Tour. Airy Up and Palmolive, with Viv Alvertine and Tessa, took on a male-dominated scene in England with a sound as hard-hitting and raw as any of the boys. The infamous Slits, a much-publicized all-girl band who've never actually made a record. Indeed, they've refused offers from several record labels. I had a vision, you know, we're going to change things for girls, we're going to change things for music. Um, you know, we, we weren't just going and playing gigs, we're doing something very new. We were absolutely driven. We are Me fucking too. women making music. Yeah. You know, that is, that's all there is to say about it. It's obvious, you know, yeah. the rhythms are obvious, it's, it's all there. <laughs> very scary on the streets. We, we had to go everywhere together as a group of three or four because the way we were dressed was so alien to the times that men everywhere found us incredibly threatening and skinhead girls and teddy girls. We would be attacked physically, verbally. Ari got stabbed twice in the street. I mean, she was 15 years old. Yeah, we were often running for our lives. First rehearsal I went to, we had hardly no songs. We could hardly play. And we started with a Ramon song uh, Blitz, Blitzkrieg Bob. We were different from other girls the, because of our lyrics and because of how the way we dressed and our attitude and everything. The whole thing about punk was you just got up on the, on the stage and did whatever you wanted to do and you didn't have to be professional about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's, about, it's about splitting up with a boy. <laughs> no, it's just about, you know. And let's do the split. It's about fucking um, guys fucking us about, and we tell them to fuck oh, off. Men just thought it was a joke, women playing guitar and playing drums, you know, it never been done before. 
So they were forced to band together, form bands together. We spend months and months discussing how should we stand on stage because we don't understand how men stand with our legs wide open, our guitar right down there, like we've got great big heavy bollocks hanging down or something. We even talked about not using breathy little girl voices, which a lot of women sang in back then. Um, you know, I said, always sing like you're shouting across a playground at a mate. And actually, a girl's voice isn't that different to a boy's voice when you're going, Oi, George! They don't want to be classed as a separate category to male musicians. They just want to be classed as musicians, which is what they are. They want to be treated as equals. It's very romanticised now, our times, you know. Yeah. And of course it was great, because when you are in a revolution, it is like a big explosion. and. And you're, you're, it's exciting. And the other flip of the coin is, it's constantly how we're going to get through this gig without being banned, how we're going to get through the gig without the audience jumping on stage and attacking us. The Pistols landed on Virgin, and by the end of May had released God Save the Queen. Then in June, continued with their stunts, interrupting the Queen's Silver Jubilee. Royal residence of Windsor Castle, and at the head of the long walk, a giant beacon waits to set in motion the nationwide celebrations of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee. Although that vow was made in my salad days when I was green in judgment, I do not regret nor retract one word of it. Band on the land. We decided to play our tribute to the Queen from the river. Between the hours of 6 and 8 p.m., the Sex Pistols played their songs beneath the bridges of London. what was, I suppose, something I thought was authentic and real, the Sex Pistols, against something that I thought was karaoke, Buckingham Palace, the Queen. And this combination, um, to me, summed up what the culture was about. And these were the, were the forces to play with. I suppose the group themselves, the Sex Pistols, they kind of felt they were being had, I suppose, that they were being caught in this scam of mine. 
and to some extent that's probably true. <laughs> The Sex Pistols' current record, God Save the Queen, is at number one in the capital hit line today. But the IBA, which administers the Broadcasting Act, has advised us that particularly at this time, this record is likely to cause offense to a number of our listeners and have asked us not to play it in our normal programming. However, we will be playing this record with the authorities' approval at 7.30 p.m. tonight on Brian Wolf's open line and will welcome your views about the punk rock phenomena which this is part of. Their next single, Pretty Vacant, backed with No Fun, was released in July and a tour of Scandinavia followed before they returned to England and began work on their debut album. Never mind the bollocks, here's the Sex Pistols. It would be released on October 27th, two weeks after the Holiday in the Sun single. And a full two months after Richard Hell and the Voidoids released their debut. It was the first appearance of the punk anthem Blank Generation that had been kicking around since Hell's Days in Television and the Neon Boys' Love Comes in Spurts. WABC-TV, New York. This is an ABC News special report. Good evening. New York City went totally dark last night, and tonight large parts of the city still are without power. WINS News Time, 1042. The man police believe is the 44 caliber killer is being held at the criminal courts building in Brooklyn this morning, awaiting arraignment on a charge of murdering 20-year-old Stacy Moskowitz, the victim of the Son of Sam's attack 12 days ago. That's a live shot again of that fire in the South Bronx that Steve called to your attention just a few moments ago. Wonder how many alarms are involved, but as Keith said, the fire department really has its work cut out for it. A month later, the Dead Boys released their debut, having secured a record contract with Sire Records, thanks to their manager, Hilly Crystal. And the keyboards, all that bullshit. Everybody's so concerned about being a fucking musician. And like, you, know, you get bands, you no know, rock and roll, anybody can play. We, you know, we, you know, nah, I mean, like Iggy, Stu you know, Iggy and Studios, those guys, they couldn't fucking play their instruments. You know, Sex Pistols can't play their instruments now, really. While the Sex Pistols had taken a decidedly political slant on their first few singles, the Dead Boys' lyrics mirrored the ideas and spirit of Iggy Pop, and like the Stooges, didn't have commercial success. Uh, they go something like, I don't need no mom and dad, I don't need no human race, I don't need no pretty face. That's pretty much, I think, the feelings that uh, all teenagers share. We weren't out to write, write an anthem or anything like that, that would be ridiculous. But it's pretty much what I think the uh, kids in all generations, uh, to my knowledge, have always had on their minds, alienation. And that song is about saying, well, all the people that are being stuffed down my throat I'm not going to take it anymore. I don't want it. 
fucking with they can't take a joke. Baiters, like Rotten, had borrowed liberally from Iggy Pop and Richard Hell to create a stage presence that was, for many outsiders, the look of a punk frontman, and their shows became legendary for Baiters' one-stage theatrics of self-asphyxiation and mutilation. This was the punk that record companies shied away from. And like the Sex Pistols, the label tried to reel the band in and soften the rough edges, like a blondie, talking heads, or television. But they, in true punk rock fashion, refused, continuing their profanity-laced shows and inconsistent performances, making it almost impossible to break into the mainstream. The Sex Pistols, with Malcolm McLaren's brilliant marketing, didn't have that problem, and they hit the road for their debut album, first in Holland, and then a 10-day tour of England right before Christmas. The immigration department tried to protect us from them, denying them visas for a few days late in December, but now they're here and they're loosed upon the land. They're the Sex Pistols, the British punk rock group that began their first American concert tour last night in Atlanta. We were going to play one date. Originally, uh, original intent was to play one date, which was going to be Pittsburgh. So we decided to do a mini tour which uh, of 11 cities and 11 dates. Finally ended up as uh, seven dates and seven cities. I think that this tour, mini tour, whatever you want to call it, very historic in nature, and I think it's changed the face of music in all aspects to come for the next few years. There hasn't been a rock and roll group to hate for a long time. They had just done the most successful thing. They had achieved what every band wants. They came as a new band, starting in a couple of clubs, ending up the last day playing a huge theater in San Francisco to a giant audience, and then broke up. It's no fun at all. No fun. Ah, ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. Punk in its original form died that night in San Francisco. The subversive, radical reimagining of popular music was complete. Everything that had propelled them to the precipice of greatness, the intentional pushing of society's buttons and fiend outrage at a rigged system also brought them down, like a self-fulfilling prophecy. From the rubble, we were left with more questions than answers, and a splintering of punk into many genres, with most of the original bands on the scene securing record deals and leaving behind their punk roots. Like The Clash. Was an LP like London Calling even punk? The answer caused everything that had come before to move into a new focus, and left us with a legacy that informs pop and underground music to this day. Malcolm pushed the brand on, and the Sex Pistols released their fifth single, Without Rotten, bringing one notorious great train robber, Ronnie Briggs. It was released in conjunction with Malcolm's movie about the Sex Pistols, The Great Rock and Roll Swindle and was backed with Sid Vicious singing My Way as a double A side. The night the group split up, Vicious was pulled off a plane at Kennedy Airport, the victim of a drug overdose. Since then, he's lived at the Chelsea Hotel, performing infrequently.
Vicious, whose real name is John Simon Ritchie, was arraigned today in Manhattan. Over the objections of the district attorney, bail was set at $50,000. Vicious' former manager arrived today from London and is trying to raise the money. He told newsmen Sid may be an outrageous person, but he is no murderer. Sid Vicious will not have to stand trial for the murder of a girlfriend at the Chelsea Hotel. Sid is no longer vicious, he's dead. His nude body found in a Greenwich Village apartment, spoon and syringe nearby. The heroin overdose may have been accidental. Sid Vicious, a British punk rocker, became famous by being well-known. Certainly not for his music. Perhaps for his public obscenities, anti-social statements and vulgarities. Rotten went on to form Public Image Limited, leaving behind his Johnny Rotten persona for the mod look he railed against, and a sound with a decidedly new wave bent. Cook and Jones went on to form The Professionals, and continued playing into the new millennium. And as for The Clash, they became the only band that mattered. But that's another story. I'm Kevin Hogan, and this is Beautiful Garbage, presented by Osiris Media. For more podcasts that connect you deeply to the music you love, check out OsirisPod.com. Osiris.